So tonight's talk is called Life at the Edge. And it's really about being at the edge, whether it's something that we find as we sit here on retreat. You know, often as we come on retreat, um, it unfolds in unexpected ways where, you know, could be we find ourselves um, revisiting something that's been deeply painful in our lives, really feels at the edge of what we can accept. Sometimes it comes through hitting deep states of calm, peace, tranquility, and not knowing what to do. And we might find that it can bring up fear, agitation, uncertainty. And this is why we practice. We practice because our minds are not yet totally free. We don't practice because we want to get to an edge or a thrill of excitement of venturing into some new experience, but because we want to see where the limitation is in the mind. Where is the holding, the identification that's exacerbating suffering in our lives? So our practice will actually challenge us. It, you know, it can sometimes feel, <laughs> for me, I've had this sense of, wow, I'm in the basement cleaning out <laughs> the cobwebs, the, you know, just past events that are lingering have left a karmic imprint that tends to create confusion in the mind. Um, you know, that we just find that we, if we're really practicing with diligence, we're going to hit the edges of our comfort zone because the practice is to shake us up out of complacency and to really discover the mind that is free no matter what is happening, the mind that is not moving to a uh, perception of the way things are that is binding and limiting. Sometimes unknowingly, in our practice, we can have it work in the opposite way. And this comes, and you know, maybe it's not true in your practice, so I'm not trying to tell you how your practice is. It's just something I discovered in my own practice that, you know, there was ways of sitting there and cocooning, making safe, you know, really just getting in a pleasant little state and staying there and not letting the mind be challenged. Or, you know, just ways of never t touching the edge. You know, just even, you know, within the retreat, it could be something as simple as walking down a hallway when others are present might stimulate fear. And so then one starts navigating so that one always walks down the hallway when there's nobody there, you know, rather than facing the fear. You know, we can have little habits like that where we keep cocooning ourselves, keep ourselves within the realm of what feels safe, what feels okay. But, you know, I, in my own experience, have no question that if we really apply ourselves, we will find ourselves in the face of uncertainty. And, you know, that can come about... Um, 
simply through coming in contact with the three characteristics, seeing anicca, impermanence, dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature, or anatta, the impersonal, insubstantial nature. When, you know, often when we get glimpses of these characteristics and where wisdom isn't, you know, full, there's only partial understanding, uh, it can really challenge us. You know, as we see into impermanence and just have the sense of everything falling away, falling away, falling away, and there's no ground to stand on. You know, it can bring up a strong sense of fear. Like, oh my gosh, what is reliable? Or when we touch into the depths of suffering, where the heart opens in the face of pain, and then suddenly, you know, like sadness is so big, and then the self suddenly comes in, constricts again, and then there's a fear of being overwhelmed by this state. Or we touch into the impersonal, insubstantial, you know, for a moment, you know, there's no self-referencing that's happening. There's no I, me, mine sitting in the midst of it all. And, we, you know, without that, what has been our reference point throughout so much of our life, suddenly not being there, it's like, ah, <laughs> you know, am I going crazy? And we find ourselves at an edge. So when we really practice and apply ourselves, these edges will appear. And so there needs to be some sense of how to be with an edge, how to really practice when practice is challenging, when practice is taking us into the depths of suffering or the truth of impermanence. How do we practice in the face of uncertainty? Because, you know, that's really a place where old habits will kick in, where, you know, facing uncertainty, you know, life feels out of control, the habit to look for how we can control, how we can find safety, rather than how the mind can stay steady there, how we can be opening to this experience. Sometimes, you, you know, the, the impulse in hitting an edge is that of trying to force oneself through it, trying to push through it. And, you know, that just creates a tightening, a hardening. That's where the sense of striving might come in, where, again, we don't have the capacity to simply be on that edge. Our edges will come in different forms. You know, for some of us, having left home, just the security, the control of our environment at home, control of the food we eat, the temperature in the room, um, coming to a place where we just let go of that, that level of renunciation can take us to an edge. Some of us may have, you know, if we were here for Joseph's talk on renunciation, we may have done simply something simply like taking the eight precepts. And then in the evening, finding ourselves deeply challenged by desire, the desire for food, and, you know, just having all kinds of mind states arise in the face of that. 
Some of us may be facing relentless sleepiness or restlessness. And it just is feeling like too much. I can't bear this. I need to get out of here. I just can't do this. Or sometimes, you know, just when there's been a steadiness in practice, that when we hit that fabric of impermanence, the uncertainty, terror arising. And, you know, for myself, in practice, having touched the deepest terror that I've known, what's going to help us there? What's going to let us continue? Firstly, just being able to recognize. You know, it may be that we hit an edge and instantly recoil. You know, it's so fast, there's no choice. But then to see, to see that something is being stirred within. And can that be okay? Can there be a sense of rising up to meet the the challenge? I have um, two teachers who've really deeply inspired me around challenge. One is the Burmese teacher, Sayada Utejaniya. And he talks about how in his own practice, when he sees some weakness, it's an invitation to a challenge, you know, to look more closely. Another uh, teacher, Minjur Rinpoche, in the Tibetan tradition, he talks about how when we feel challenged, this is the perfect place for practice. So to notice, if when we hit uncertainty, How is the mind relating there? Is it the sense that I have to get rid of this? That this isn't okay? Sometimes we feel like we've done something wrong. If we had been able to practice perfectly, this wouldn't be happening. And yet, it's happening because we have been practicing. Because out, you know, often out of a sense of safety, you know, in the silence of a retreat, wounding that we haven't been able to touch in the past can surface because we feel safe enough, stable enough to meet this moment. And so don't let the habit of judging ourselves in relationship to a rising experience So it's unpleasant. We don't like it. It's okay. It's not the sum total of who we are. So there's a shakiness. If we can just muster a little bit of interest, what's happening here? What's the mind hitting that says, no, it's not okay? And then, you know, just for a moment, can we touch it? Or can we even just have the intention to know it? 
Sometimes the intention is all we can do. But in that intention, that intention is counter to the whole way that samsara gets fueled. It's that willingness to look, that willingness to be honest, that willingness to cease to feed that which only leads to more suffering. So even if there's only just this intention, know that that intention comes from a noble heart, a courageous heart. Sometimes from that place, it might feel so threatening that we need to back off. We need to retreat from. That's okay. That can be a way of helping the mind to stabilize, to gain momentum with mindfulness. If we're just in a state of recoil, aversion, you know, the mind is so contracted, mindfulness isn't there. And mindfulness is our refuge. Mindfulness is what is going to help us be steady in the presence of these strong states of mind. I remember when I was on retreat once and going through intense terror, fear, and my teacher just reminding me of the coolness of mindfulness. And that's what happens in those moments. It's, it's, it brings space to the experience. And that's what's going to help the mind to stabilize, to be able to see this state in its nature. To be able to see fear as just fear. To be able to see that fear is arising due to causes and conditions. And it's temporary. It's a passing weather pattern in the mind. I came across this, um, see if I can find it now. This quote from a man who spends a lot of his life in the outdoors, uh, does a lot of hiking. Um, and he talked about something that I think was, it, it really, to me, relates to practice. And I probably can't find it. So anyhow, <laughs> I'll, I'll paraphrase what he said. And I can't remember his name. Maybe it'll come. <laughs> but he's talking about hiking. And you know, if you've done a lot of hiking up steep mountains, boy, the, the, I don't, I've seen the hindrances come so strong at that time, you know, and uh, so overwhelming. And the mind gets so heavy. So someone had taught him to take a rest in the midst of each step. And, you know, he discovered that he could do that no matter how fast he was walking. And to me, that's really just that moment of finding neutral with each experience. And that, you know, this means, and to me, it's really about mindfulness. It's that coolness of mind that's non-reactive. So in the midst of really strong states of mind, in the midst of torrents of thought, 
It's being able to find that place that is non-reactive, where the mind is at rest, and that will support the stability. I think in doing so, we also have to learn to accept the fear. You know, often we have the idea that, you know, if we were a real warrior, the fear wouldn't be there. But the difference comes when we accept the fear and are not stopped by it. And we've probably all seen in our lives the effect of fear when we are stopped by it, when we won't go outside of what is known, how confining it is. And so just to notice if we're at an edge and fear is present, can this too be okay? Can this be acceptable? Can it be a part of what we explore? This work takes a tremendous courageousness of heart because we are looking into the deepest recesses of our minds, the pockets where it's not been okay to venture into. And that courageousness of heart becomes very natural as we discover through our practice that we really have no choice. That to simply go for sensual pleasure is never going to bring us to a deep and sustaining happiness. It's never going to bring deep satisfaction in our lives. And as we tire of our different strategies for getting, for having, as we get tired of our different strategies for trying to be safe, have a sense of control, we tire. And we really want to see that which is true, that which is helpful, that which is useful. And so at these times we find the courageousness of heart gets strengthened by a sense of faith, of possibility, of really seeing in our own experience the power, the impact of being present, that refuge of mindfulness, that refuge that allows the voice of wisdom to come through.
we find then that the courageousness is not a forceful act of trying to bear something, but the courageousness comes from that quivering or trembling of the heart that wants to alleviate suffering and is caring and kind, that is tender and open. When we really see how if we don't meet our fear, we become deadened, we see there's no choice but to look more closely. For that is what will bring us truly alive. Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish religious poet from the 1800s, says, To dare is to lose one's footing momentarily. To not dare is to lose oneself. We probably know what it's like to deaden, deny, suppress. And it's not very inviting. But when we've seen moments where the mind and heart have been at peace, at ease with the way things are. That helps to strengthen this courageousness of heart. Edges appear when old habits from the past reemerge over and over again. Things that we thought we had dealt with were finished with. And suddenly they're here again and again and again. For me, there's been something around the understanding of karma. And karma not being the enemy. I know when I first heard about teachings on karma, I was thinking of all the bad things I'd ever done in my life. And, um, you know, it just seemed like bad news. But then what I see is that there is repetitive habits. So things keep coming around. But that just means that's what's here to wake us up that this is the very place we can free the mind. And so as some of these states of mind come round and round again, 
to know that just because it's here, it can be our teacher. It, this can be the place of liberation. It means we really have to honor our own process. And so often we get caught into comparing what's happening with us with somebody else and feeling like, you know, they're on the fast track, we're on the slow track. But can we really just honor the unfolding that's happening here? Can we really use these experiences as the place of liberation? And it's just a shift in attitude, not needing to get rid of, not needing to hang on to, just needing to see the truth of, the nature of what's happening here and now. Sometimes the courageousness of heart will take us right into the experience. You know, to be face to face with fear or that, you know, the rage that can emerge in the mind. Anxiety. Sometimes it's going to be a courageousness of heart that will have us backing off in practice. But sometimes, you know, there's an imbalance that's happening. The mindfulness isn't steady enough to meet the experience. And there's a necessity to back off. And, you know, I, I, this is again coming from my own experience, where having a model of how practice should be. You know, there was a time in my own practice where I would just go from sitting to walking to sitting to walking. The simpler it was, the more joy and delight there was in the heart. And then, suddenly, you know, through illness, couldn't practice in the same way. And that whole model for what practice should look like didn't, couldn't be done. And, you know, there was, for a period of time, a trying to do it anyways, and just getting more and more exhausted from it. But then seeing that the letting go of the form wasn't a letting go of the mindfulness. It was just a changing. But so long as the, the idea of how it should be was being clung to, that was limiting. That was constricting. And yet to let go of that was like, Letting go of the thought of liberation. No, how do I know that I'm not just being a wimp here? How do I know that this just isn't going to lead me back into deep sleep? It can take a tremendous courageousness to let go of how we think practice should be. And that's, you know, with that for me, it was having to see a level of concept in the mind, an idea, a belief that was there, 
And instead of clinging to a belief, looking to what helps support presence, a relaxed heart, mind in the moment. just to speak about a few things that can be helpful in having this courageousness of heart to meet the edges. Taking an interest. What's happening here? Letting that interest be supported by mindfulness, clear seeing, the willingness to be honest. Uh, Just remembering this time where I felt like, um, well, practice had been going along pretty cruisy for a bit. And then, you know, there was subtle little things that were just a little niggling, but wanting to stay with the peacefulness, the the ease, and, you know, just kind of elbowing these other states out. But then, you know, they started, because of that, they started taking hold. And they started becoming more contraction, tightness. And then, you know, just really getting in a tizzy. And feeling like really at an edge, really locked up. You know, and what can happen there is, you know, the sense that this life will always be like this. You know, as if we're, we're going to stay frozen in that state forever. And then, you know, just the tweaking of interest. You know, and feeling like at some moment, th- th- there was first the thought, okay, just take a break. But then suddenly the sword of wisdom came in. And it was like, what's going on here? And just, you know, just that interest. And then that being supported by mindfulness. It was just quickly seeing that, you know, some thought had been identified with. And out of that, this whole, you know, and it's one of the things that we really see on the edge is the power of thoughts that are identified with. How they have a tremendous amount of energy. And in, you know, a split second, we're in a tailspin. But just that one moment of looking with honesty. You know, before when the peace was there, but the niggling started to come in, there wasn't the honesty. You know, it's like, I don't know who we're trying to fool (laughs) by, you know, not seeing. But when that honesty is there, that brings energy. That brings an uprightness. That brings a sense of integrity into the practice. Not trying to push the process. It can happen too that on these edges, it's like, just get me through this really quick, you know, and we try to force through. 
we get tense with. We have an agenda. You know, that forcing is just the feeding of aversion. It's the relaxation, the acceptance that is going to help. The force is, you know, it's almost like you get to the edge and you throw yourself off the edge. You'll just have to pick yourself up on a heap on the bottom. Sometimes the tool of noting can be really helpful at these edges because it can seem so big, overwhelming, and we're not even really sure what's going on. And so just, you know, maybe it even starts with confusion because when there's a lot of uncertainty, the mind can be very confused. But just recognizing confusion and then allowing the mind to be with that You know, confusion is like this. Letting it unfold. Watching the tendency to judge or define oneself by this experience. That just creates or strengthens the sense of self, the solidity. Really see these states in their changing nature, that they are subject to impermanence, that they are impersonal, insubstantial, that anyone in a state of fear will have the same experience. Watching the tendency to define oneself by the experience. We'll often find that edges can appear in times of low energy where mindfulness isn't as strong and suddenly we're inundated with sticky mind states. So really needing to learn how to practice with low energy. Because, you know, we're human. As human beings, the energy comes and goes. It's not always the same. But we just find the energy that's needed to meet this moment. So when the energy is low, when tiredness is present. Often for me, it's meeting the experience in the simplest way possible. What's the most immediate experience? It might be hearing. Might be awareness of the body posture. What can the mind meet? Sometimes when we feel inundated with these torrents of sticky mind states, we need to learn how to protect the mind so that um, we don't 
just become lost or we don't re-traumatize ourselves in practice. You know, if there's been something that's been really painful in the past and it re-emerges and we don't meet it and get lost in it, it can lead to further contraction. So we need to know when it is time to turn away. When, when there is ways that we can turn the mind towards that which is wholesome, that which will help to give a buoyancy to the mind so that it can later meet the experience. Sometimes we do this through turning the mind to loving-kindness. It might be working with ourselves, you know, just wishing well for ourselves. We might chant the metta chant to ourselves just as a way of calming and finding balance. Sometimes in these moments where things are strong, we might invite equanimity. So an example of this, when fear is strong, and, you know, for me, things like being with the breath, it's so shaky. It's so hard uh, to find stability with. Uh, or the body temperature feels so cold, death-like. You know, I found like placing the attention on the outer edge of the body, somewhere that it's more neutral. That helped the mind to find balance. We'll find that these edges help us to develop patience. That we see that awakening is not something we can force that there's not instant remedies to some of the challenges we face. But patience helps us to be there with kindness, steadiness. It, you know, I remember um, being in Burma one time and really being challenged. You know, it was a time I had ordained as a nun and I was living in the nunnery, and um, there was just <laughs> challenges on so many levels. And I felt like a beginner at practice. You know, I would just sit down and coach myself through. Uh, and then, you know, I came across this quote one day about something about how, you know, until we are fully enlightened, there will be moments of confusion. And that this is where we cultivate patience. It, was, it just gave a much broader spectrum to it. To know that, yeah, there's going to be moments when we're deeply challenged, when confusion is present. This is okay. 
And if it weren't for the challenges, we'd never develop patience. A line that I once wrote when I was going through a difficult time but having some perspective of patience is, a teardrop finds its way to the ocean as the toilet flushes, the journey home begins. (laughs) Can we be kind in these moments? Can we be tender? patient, not forcing. You know, knowing when we're at an edge of unacceptability. Through having patience, or having impatience and really seeing the impatience, turns it to patience. So the relinquishment of our reactivity or resistance to the experience. Some other suggestions about life at the edge. Know where something is seemingly so permanent. To do some reflection on impermanence. You know, to know that all conditioned things are of the nature to change. And, you know, at that time, although what's overwhelming may feel so permanent, look towards the body, the little changes in the body. Look towards just the rising and passing of sound, sight, smells. Really, because, you know, in seeing the change there, it helps us to understand that whatever seemingly so solid and permanent is also subject to change. Sometimes on, uh, in the face of these challenges, Instead of really focusing in on the challenge, the mind state, see the space around it. Be aware of the element of space, the vastness of space. Now let the frame be really big. And then this whatever, you know, whether it's restlessness, sleepiness, fear, anxiety, aversion, you know, that's just arising within this vast field of awareness. That too can bring a steadiness. Sometimes remembering our friends who may have faced similar challenges. I don't know if you know somebody who maybe has physical challenges and yet you've heard them speak And you know that maybe even at times they have equanimity in the face of a decaying body. It becomes inspiring. 
You know, our friends inspire us to meet the challenges. Or remembering that anybody who has awakened had to face these same challenges. And if they can do it, we can do it too. It can give us inspiration. Sometimes going back and reflecting on times in our life where we really had a moment of wisdom, of clear seeing, can just remind us of the sense of possibility, which can help to bring forth the energy or effort to meet this challenge. When we find the courageousness of heart to meet our experiences, we start to pop the bubbles of fear that we get caught in. This comes from Ralph Waldo Emerson. When a resolute young fellow steps up to the great bully, the the world, and takes him boldly by the beard, he is often surprised to find it comes off in his hand and that it was only tied on to scare away the timid adventurers. Now, so often what seems so fearful is, well, often, yes, it, it is nothing. When we, it's insubstantial, you know, and it just pops in the face of mindfulness. You know, and sometimes that can be a sense of, you know, just bring mindfulness and pop the contraction, the, the uh, whole identification lifts. So I encourage you to look where the edges are, to find that steadiness, that courageousness of heart, to venture into this territory to venture into the unknown. To really look where the mind is bound, contracted. To look without taking it personally or defining oneself by it. And to keep looking until we find that which is of true refuge. Our practice is learning to be more inclusive, really opening our hearts and minds, venturing into unknown territory. a courageousness of heart that comes from within, that is noble. A courageousness of heart 
that comes out of that sense of possibility. Those moments of touching that which is free. So let's just sit for a moment. This is a teaching from Tulku Urjan Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher. It's called Fully Opened Mind. The difference between Buddhas and sentient beings is like the difference between the narrowness and the openness of space. Sentient beings are like the space held within a tightly closed fist, while Buddhas are fully open, all-encompassing. May all beings have the mind of a Buddha. So, chanting the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.